Hey, this is Kate Nocera, and you're listening to No One Knows Anything, the BuzzFeed News Politics Podcast. Each week, we talk about everything insane going on in American politics and try and break down a few stories to make sense of things. Joining me, as always, is Charlie Warzel, our senior tech writer at BuzzFeed. Hey, Charlie. Hey, excited to hop into the fever swamp with you this <laughs> afternoon. So uh, what are, what are we going to talk about this week? Uh, this week, we're going to talk about uh, the latest on the former Trump advisor who gave documents to a Russian operative in 2013. Spooky. We're going to talk about uh, what is a filibuster, why is it going away, and what does that mean for the future? And I will lastly introduce you to Mike Cernovich, the alt writer who's having the week of his life right now. Uh, this week, we'll be joined by Ali Watkins, who covers national security for BuzzFeed News, and Sarah Mims, our Washington, D.C. editor, who edits a lot of our Capitol Hill coverage. But first, just so you are all aware, it is 4 p.m. on Wednesday, and I'm telling you that because by the time you listen to this, who knows what could have happened. So there's a former Trump campaign advisor named Carter Page that you may or may not have heard about. His name comes up a lot in stories about whether there are or were connections between Trump associates and Russia. But earlier this week, we found out that in 2013, the very same Carter Page had a relationship with a Russian intelligence operative. He was meeting him and contacting him and giving him documents. With us to discuss all of this is Allie Watkins, who covers national security for BuzzFeed News and broke that story. Hey, Allie. Hi, Kate. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. So um, tell me just a little bit about who Carter Page is. So um, Carter Page is this kind of, I'm trying to think of a diplomatic word, uh, quirky figure okay. who nobody really knew about until he was randomly announced by Trump in um, this editorial meeting Trump was having with the editorial board of the Washington Post and they asked who his foreign policy advisors were and he lists a bunch of names and he says Carter Page PhD and everybody was like who the hell is Carter Page <laughs> so everyone starts googling you know who is Carter Page he had this weird meteoric rise um, and then Within, like, six months, he was unceremoniously, like, dumped from the campaign um, because he it turned out he had these kind of strange, shadowy connections to Moscow. Um, the, the short version of who Page actually is outside of the Trump orbit is he's a former Marine intelligence officer who's kind of bounced around. He's one of those jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none kind of personalities. He's done yeah. all these different things. and it, I can relate. <laughs> his, um, his claim to... Fame, I guess, if you can call it that, is after he went through a few um, kind of iterations of policy stuff after his service as a Marine intelligence officer, he became a energy an investor in the Russian energy sector um, and has kind of this very strange shadowy history being linked to Gazprom and which is a Russian energy company, huge Russian energy company. Um, and he has, he just has these very this strange history of being an investor in Moscow who now is a consultant, an energy consultant, quote unquote, in New York city. Okay. So I guess, yeah. Sorry, if you're confused, ahead, it's because it's confusing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guess I, what I'd love to know from you is, you know, it's, it doesn't seem like it's a present-day connection. And, and where 
like where does this rank in the sort of you know uh, alarm bell factory I guess this is a very good point and this was kind of what was what is expected I think when you ever write about anything to do with Trump and Russia is that it very quickly will get polarized by different sides so you know some people looked at this story and saw it as evidence that somehow you know Trump campaign associates were colluding with Russian intelligence there's absolutely no evidence of that that isn't what the story is about but the two important questions out of this which are really important and relevant to this question are how did I mean did the Trump campaign know about this prior incident um, did the Trump campaign know that Page had formerly talked to the FBI because he had been meeting and passing documents to an SVR agent? So that is the issue, really, out of this, is like, what did the Trump administration know and when did they know it? Um, but I'm also, like, to that is that they've been trying to avoid the Carter Page question for, I mean, pretty much since he was dumped from the campaign's orbit. Um, because there's been all these competing stories of, like, he was really close to Trump. He was not really close to Trump. He was, you know, just thrown out there at this meeting, but he never really had any meetings with Trump during the campaign. But we've never really clearly understood what Page, I mean, what Page's role was in the campaign. Like, was he writing policy memos? Was he CC'd on a random email? And they have never made that clear. Interesting. One of the things about your story that I thought was really fascinating is that, is that Carter Page spoke to you about this and sort of, you know, can confess to being to having this um, this connection. And I'm just sort of curious why you think he's so forthcoming about this. I really don't have an answer to that question. I mean, it was, I'm going to, so I'll give you like the short version of how this kind of happened. I mean, I met Paige, I guess, three weeks ago or so at this point on the Hill um and what's he doing on the hill he was dropping around yeah he was dropping off um a document to the senate intelligence (laughs) committee that they didn't ask for okay um he's basically like (laughs) yes i mean they're based the the senate intelligence committee is investigating whether this guy had any like shady connections to moscow and he's standing up and saying i volunteer talk to me please 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 and the intelligence committee is just like what yeah who is like Check this guy out. Kind Amazing. Of thing. So anyway, um, I was doing my usual weird reporter thing and sitting outside the intelligence committee on like a slow Tuesday or whatever. And I kind of did a double take and I was like, wow, that really looks like Carter Page. Oh, my God. Holy that. That's Carter Page. What the hell? Um, and then chased him down a hallway, exchanged phone numbers. Long story shorter, he he had reached out after that. It was just very strange. The long story short of this is that Carter Page has been texting me for like three weeks now and we've been like having this conversation whatever and the weird thing is like this is not the first time this has happened where he's put himself in a situation where he's very forthcoming with something that like might just be better for him if he wasn't well that's the thing it's like i i wanted to do a slightly uh dramatic reading of of the transcript um that you include in your story of um the operative talking about page which is like it's very uh kind of absurd and 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 funny in this kind of dark way um so if you'll excuse me i'm going to do that now mail one is uh is carter page here so mail one wrote that he is sorry he went back to moscow and forgot to check his inbox but he wants to meet when he gets back and i i think he's an idiot and forgot who i am he got hooked on gazprom thinking that if they have a project he could rise up I also promised him a lot. This intelligence method to cheat. How else to work with foreigners? You promise a favor for a favor. You get documents from him, and you tell him to go fuck himself. (laughs) 
and it's There's just a very good Russian spy voice. I, I didn't want to do the accent. I, you know, is, <laughs> thanks. First, yeah. first of the new podcast, try to you know walk away with some dignity. But uh, it just seems like he like he's getting owned here, and and yet he's cool to admit it. The thing we don't know, like the thing that I really and I know you really want to figure this out, and I really want to figure it out. It's like how he could either be like super important or not important at all yes. to this whole Is there a middle ground there? Is it like sort of, or is it really an extreme like that you think? Well, I think that like it's it's not even like is he important or is, is he not? It's like it's you have two sets of questions regardless of what the answer to that is. Like if he is important you know, then we need to ask, like, okay, uh, what other relationships did he have? What was he doing on behalf of the Trump campaign? What about this June slash July trip to Moscow? And if he wasn't that important, then how the hell did he get into the inner circle of a presidential campaign? Like, Wait, three right. months before the election. So it's just, it's like, there's so many weird rabbit hole questions you have to ask. Who brought him on to the campaign? That is the big unknown. That's the, right. Yeah, there's like names floated, but nobody knows for sure. I guess what I'm curious about is like what this does for the the, the Russian narrative and, and sort of like where <laughs> where we go from here. It It's the most concrete example of there having been, at least in the past, some kind of really questionable connection and, and not even necessarily disqualifying but what the Trump administration knew, what the Trump then campaign knew, and when did they know it? Those, I think, are really important questions to look at moving forward. Because even if Trump himself didn't know that some of these shadier connections existed, someone should have. All right. Thanks so much, Allie. Thanks for having me. In the next couple days, and if not then, sometime real soon, the United States Senate is going to likely do the so-called nuclear option, which means they're going to get rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. Uh, Charlie, when you think of a filibuster, what do you imagine? Well, uh, sort of an an older man at a (laughs) podium talking for long periods of time and maybe reading like the back of an, an Ikea manual in 10 languages. That's what I think of. Just stalling. Right. So something like this. Before we vote, I'd like to tell you about the thousands of federal projects that aren't discretionary. I believe that she's filibustering. Like $5 million we're spending on Senate hair care services. CJ? Yeah. What the hell is he doing? It's a recipe for deep fried fantail shrimp. Yeah, but what's he still doing up there? He's got a recipe book. I would now like to share some ideas I have for J.J. Abrams' seventh chapter in the Star Wars saga. Pan down from the twin sons of Tatooine, we are now close on the mouth of the Sarlacc pit. The reality, Charlie, I hate to break it to you, is um, even more boring than that. Oh, God. This is what it sounds like in real life. Mr. McConnell... No. Are there any senators in the chamber wishing to vote or wishing to change their vote? If not, on this vote, the yeas are 56, the nays are 42. Three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn not having voted in the affirmative. The motion is not agreed to. So I hate everything. So, <laughs> so I, you know, I, I feel like I know a 
a lot about the filibuster, but there's someone who works with me that knows even more. And lucky for us, she's joining us today in the studio, Sarah Mims. Hey guys, how's it going? Good. Are you are you ready for some filibuster talk? I am so pumped up for like some serious Senate conversation. It's going to be awesome. Thank you, my friend. My friend is what senators call each other if they're sworn enemies and they like actually fucking hate each other. I'm I'm literally in the fetal position in the corner. You can't tell, but that's where I am. <laughs> no, no, right no. Now. it's gonna be it's gonna be just <sighs> okay. fine. It's it's not that bad. All right, let's do it. Sarah Mims, in in just like a couple of sentences, just talk to small child Charlie. Hey, and tell him what filibuster they may be getting rid of in the next two days. So what they're going to do is basically right now, in order to get a Supreme Court, uh, a judge onto the Supreme Court, is they have to have 60 senators agree to let them vote on whether or not that judge gets on the Supreme Court. Following. Right. So that if they don't get those 60 votes, that's called a filibuster. It's the boring kind. It's not the standing up and talking forever kind. What they're talking about doing is getting rid of that. So it's just... A simple majority. 51 senators say, yes, we're going to vote on this, and then they vote on it. I can wrap my pea brain around that. <laughs> we are. I'm with you. So I, I guess, like, like, we got to this place where uh, Republicans have said they're going to, quote, unquote, invoke the nuclear option and make this change to the rules where they only need 51 votes to, to confirm a Supreme Court nominee. We got here because Harry Reid changed the rules for presidential uh, nomination, right, for his cabinet, because things kept stalling and he wanted to move things along. And it was actually like very it was a very supported rules change by the liberal base. But now people are freaking out about it. Yeah, basically. I mean, you know. Republicans say it's all Harry Reid's fault. Democrats say it's all Mitch McConnell's fault because he wouldn't let Merrick Garland through. And that's how we ended up here. Um, but yeah, Merrick Garland was was President Obama's nominee in the in the last term of his presidency. Right. Exactly. That sad judge that you saw on TV sometimes <laughs> was nominated <laughs> and 14 months later is just back at his old job hanging he's, out. He's, na- he's now a Jeopardy answer. You know. <laughs> Exactly. That sad judge. <laughs> the height of his career is being on Jeopardy now. Oh. Um, yeah, so uh, basically what happened was, yeah, Harry Reid changed this rule um, back in 2013 for cabinet nominees and also some other like lower court judicial nominees. But he left the Supreme Court alone because he was like, the Supreme Court is too important. We've got to have some bipartisanship on that. So I'm going to leave that in place. And ever since then, it's kind of been a countdown clock to when this is going to happen, when Mitch McConnell or whoever uh, was going to say, we're going to do this for the Supreme Court, too, because we're tired of waiting around to get someone into that seat. I I was talking to someone today about this, like having a Republican judge, Phil Antonin Scalia, who's a justice who, who passed away, whose seat he's filling, this is like the one thing that all Republicans can agree on. Like they agree on nothing else right now. Totally. Except for the fact that, you know, Neil Gorsuch, Trump's nominee, should be on the court. Uh, so there is no way that McConnell was actually going to to stop this from happening. No, right. And like even a couple of Democrats are like, yeah, he should be. He should be. <laughs> but so my question, I guess, is now what is this going to do going forward? Like, does this just dramatically, like, 
it seems like it's kind of unprecedented territory. We know what's gonna what stands to happen with Gorsuch, but what does this maybe mean for the future? Yeah, totally. I mean, it is unprecedented territory. And what happens is not only for Neil Gorsuch, but for every support Supreme Court nominee going forward from here, they don't have to have the support of the other party. Like a Supreme Court justice has always had to have at least a little bit of support from the other party. That's going away. And so what some even senators are talking about right now, what people are really worried about is like the next few Supreme Court nominees they can be absolutely crazy people. Like we can get the most extreme judges put in as long as you have a Senate and a White House that are controlled by the same party. And that means like, like right, now. Uh, right. If that if there if there's a Democrat in the White House next, like you can get like a super duper lefty judge. It's on both sides, right? Right, exactly. And like Right now, I mean, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg retires in the next few years, while Republicans still control the Senate, Donald Trump is still in the White House, he can nominate whoever the hell he wants. And because they just need Republican support, that person's probably going to get through. It it fundamentally changes the type of person that gets nominated for the Supreme Court. And and I I guess with, you know, that, that brings up something that I guess I don't think about much, which is that this, maybe what we take for granted right now is that even though... You know, it's always the Supreme Court's always a contentious thing in our politics that it is like a pretty state institution. It's a pretty you know, like it, there's like maybe this is obvious, but there's no riffraff, I guess. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's just I, I it's it's I don't it's freaky to think of like uh, the volatility of the rest of politics coming into. Right. I mean, these are lifetime appointments. Right. <laughs> This has way, way bigger implications than just what Donald Trump decides to do in the next couple of months. Um, After Gorsuch, if there are other vacancies on the court, you know, Ginsburg retires or whoever. um, Yeah, that has really lasting implications for a long time. And do you end up with some relic of the Trump administration or, um, you know, say the next extremely liberal president on the court for decades? This might be dumb, but can you go back at all? Like, can any of this be rolled back? It can, but the, like, what is your incentive for right, rolling right. these rules back? What's the point if you're in charge? Oh. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Adults being, no, being exactly. an adult. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Mitch McConnell hated this when Harry Reid did this in 2013. He was like, "It's a sad day for the Senate." You know, he was extremely angry. I mean, he was like, like, "This is like the worst day in America." Oh, I mean, yeah. It was. It was. He was very dramatic about but it. But is he rolling it back? No, taking it up a notch. <laughs> He's moving on take... forward. Yeah. Wow. Does it make things more democratic, though? How so? You know, like, ha- well, like having like 51 votes versus like needing to get to 60 votes. Oh, having a majority. Yeah. Like just like a simple majority. Like it does sort of move it, I guess, to this like more democratic. Pl- I don't know. It feels like it Maybe would if there wrong. were adults involved. But it just sounds <laughs> like that's not the case. I don't know. I uh, they, uh, the point is, is that the Senate has always like really prided themselves on being like the adults in Congress. Yeah, totally. You know, like they're the ones that keep the decorum. They're like, I don't know what this crazy house is doing, but we have our shit together over here. And this is really a big signal that um, they don't, you know, <laughs> they they don't. And they're fine going ahead and moving forward with this. But it's funny to hear them all talk this week about how sad they are that the, that the filibuster is going away. 
Yeah, I mean, the other thing about this is, like, if you do get rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees, you are ratcheting up the pressure so much on a handful of people in the majority party. And so you end up in a situation where you've got, like, these few moderates who tend to work with the other side where they are basically the only people who matter on any Supreme Court nominees. Like, right now you have Susan Collins from Maine and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska who are, like, fairly independent Republicans. Those two women then become like the most powerful people in the U.S. Congress. It is basically up to them whether or not whoever Donald Trump picks uh, for this next seat post filibuster ends up getting through. That's crazy. I didn't even really think about that, that those two would be like kind of more powerful than Mitch McConnell, you know, at that point. Right. If you don't have... If you don't have to get Democrats, you don't have to have a judge who goes up there and says, you know, I don't know how I feel about abortion and sort of pretends, <laughs> you know, yeah. in one way or the other. Then it comes down to like the moderate members and you have to get just enough to the left of crazy uh, to get them on board as well. All right. Um, well, I learned something. Thank you so much, Sarah, for, yeah. for coming on. Thank you. So each week on No One Knows Anything, uh, we like to feature something that's happening on the internet that's outside of what you might normally consider politics. And um, this week, we're going to talk about Mike Cernovich, or as he is on our prep sheet, Meme Man. Um, If you don't know who Mike Cernovich is, let's start here. Um, Here are a few things that you may have heard that uh, Mike Cernovich helped promote into the internet ecosystem. First, that there was a child sex trafficking ring being run out of a D.C. pizza shop. That's Pizzagate. Uh, Second, that Hillary Clinton was suffering from Parkinson's disease, and ostensibly still is, according to Mike Cernovich. And lastly, that former National Security Advisor Susan Rice asked which Trump associates were named in incidental collections. So, in other words, uh, their names appeared in reports about surveillance of foreigners, and Rice asked which Trump associates that was. Unlike the first two, that last story is reportedly true, or at least it's a real issue that top national security reporters have published stories about over the last few days. And Mike Cernovich had that as a big scoop on Monday morning. Uh, Rice hasn't confirmed that she asked for the identities of the Trump officials, but she hasn't denied it either. So I think the real question here is, how did Mike Cernovich get to that story first? And that's sort of what I want to discuss with you, Kate. It seems like we're sort of in this totally new media ecosystem here where you have uh, this realm of the pro-Trump internet that really sort of plays completely fast and loose with the truth, getting, making news, like that that the real, that the mainstream media has to react to, that the White House has to react to, everyone. So I like I like really don't know who he is or where he came from, Charlie. Like I, I know what Pizzagate is. I had heard the, like, you know, fake news, Hillary Clinton, Parkinson's disease stuff. And obviously, the Susan Rice stuff was really hard to miss. And I've heard Mike Cernovich's name a million times. I see his tweets and shit. And then, like, I just don't... what Like, from, from what swamp did he emerge? <laughs> he emerged... Uh, he emerged sort of in 2012... Uh, on the internet is sort of like part of the men's rights self-help motivational movement. 
and um and and now he's getting a lot of flack for that because he actually has said some really incendiary things about uh, uh, date rape and how there's really no such thing as date rape and uh, and and people are calling him a rape apologist for that. Uh, but he he really sort of rose to I guess what you would call the the national internet scene in 2014 during Gamergate and he was a very active uh, participant there in the sort of um, you know masculinity is getting dr- getting drowned out and made uh, less important on the internet and we need to sort of take back the internet for for men's rights so he's always sort of I'm been so glad I paid attention to like none of that yeah like, I know well, it was like congratulations to you cultural I mean I can't hold everything in my brain at once you know like there there's enough but now now Mike Cernovich has entered like my realm a little bit um, and that, like you said, like he broke this story about Susan Rice, and then the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., and his, you know, special advisor Kellyanne Conway both tweeted like really laudatory things about him. <laughs> I, I, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted that he deserved a Pulitzer Prize for that scoop, and and I mean, and 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 now Mike, you know, two weeks ago he was featured on sixty Minutes, and this is sort of. You know, the reason, the interesting thing about this isn't so much that, you know, that, you know, Mike is a fascinating troll or he's really good with, you know, uh, with promoting his brand or what, whatever. It, it's that it's that that this sort of group, like the, the way that the, that the political moment works now, I, I feel people like Cernovich can be elevated to the most important national conversation surrounding politics. And I think one of the things I wanted to talk about with you is how this affects the nature of who you trust in the media. Mike is someone who has, you know, has pushed a lot of untruths and has really sort of no journalistic standards as we know them. And yet he's potentially right on a blockbuster story. And and it sort of makes you it, you can't really put him now in this camp of this is someone who is completely fake news. And so the lines are blurred, and I just, you know, I, I wonder sort of what do we, who do we trust now? Can we draw that line? I, I'm skeptical that we can. Like, it, like it does really feel he has the ability to talk to and with the administration, but to me, uh, something like Pizzagate sort of. Like that's not super for, forgivable here, <laughs> right? Like, like I'm waiting for a second source on his stories and and from one that I from one that I trust. But I, I mean, I, I guess I, the, the question is, does it does it matter though if all of his people, all of his, you know, the sort of the rest of the reactionary pro-Trump internet runs with it, and you know, small blogs pick it up, and then because it's just trending on Twitter and because the volume's there, people have to respond to it in some way. And it's like, I mean, does it matter if if it doesn't have the second source at this point? I, obviously, it matters for the truth. But in terms of like, you know, the narrative, like this pushes Trump, all of this stuff from the pro-Trump internet pushes Trump's narrative forward, whether it's true or not. Uh, I guess f- from your point of view, Charlie, like how how seriously does someone like me take what Mike Cernovich says? It, that's such a, like, it's such a good and important question. And, and the thing that I keep going back to is, like, the way that I 
sort of treated this group before November 8th, which was that I, I would sort of look at the stuff that was happening, conclude that it was an alternate reality, sort of, you know, for my own sanity, sort of, you know, take it with like a grain of salt. And then I think it's not just that, that Trump won, but the effective network that this group has built to amplify their message in a, many different ways and the enthusiasm that they have and the relentlessness and the fact that they come to every single argument better prepared than you will be because it's the only thing that they're doing and it's their like monomaniacal goal to push forward the Trump agenda. I think that that's something that like is worth taking seriously and I think... That- and Trump values that, right? Like that is like the number one thing... Absolutely, that he values in anyone is loyalty and support, and 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 you can see it being rewarded. You know, there's a lot of it's unclear, but there's a lot of speculation out there that you know the Cernovich story was tipped off by someone in the White House. Um, yeah, you know, Trump has throughout his entire campaign and continues to retweet people like Twitter pundit Bill Mitchell, you know, who is just relentlessly positive about everything that Trump does. It's sort of like a wink and a nod of, you know, like, you're like, way to go. And it elevates them. And it continues to do it. And it's sort of like this weird access journalism, vicious cycle that I think is like, I see and I really wish I was the person who could who could say like, oh, yeah, no, no big deal. But I think that I think that there's something here, and I think it continues to build with this White House, and if the White House continues to feed it, and it's it's silly to look away from. Okay, so I'll start paying closer attention. I got a Twitter list for you. I call it Real News. You're going to love it. <laughs> I'm super ready to follow that. Real News. So every week on No One Knows Anything, we like to travel back in time and see what Donald Trump tweeted on this day a couple years ago. Today, we're going back to April 5th, 2014. So three years ago now. Simpler times. If if my math is correct. Uh, (laughs) 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 You got your abacus out. You're just... (laughs) I was a told there a series no of math. calculations. There's like beakers burbling in the corner. <laughs> Carry the okay. Sorry. At real Donald Trump, Major League Baseball was really smart when they wouldn't let Mark Cuban buy a team. Was it his financials or the fact that he's an asshole? <laughs> <laughs> the best part about this is this like really sets sets up the the uh, 2020 Mark Cuban. Uh, Donald Trump president. I know. It's great. And now they just talk about each other all the time. It's fantastic. Amazing. All right, Charlie, give us the next one. Okay. Also today, three years ago, uh, remember where you were. Haters and losers say I wear a wig. I don't. Say I went bankrupt. I didn't. Say I'm worth $3.9 billion. Much more. They know the truth. So very, like totally uh, not unhinged. Definitely, it kind of has a slam poetry vibe to it. It does. Like, there's like it's there's like better cadence than a lot of them. Also, I just want to say, no one can see this, but on my screen, I like looked at this tweet and kind of squinted the wrong way. And there above it, there is an 
another one with a handle, Twitter handle in it, and I thought that it was my name, and I just freaked out for a second, thinking that in 2014, <laughs> Donald Trump tweeted at me, and I never replied or noticed. Uh, <laughs> well, now here we are, three years later, and we have finished our first episode back of No One Knows Anything. I had a good time. It has been a wild ride. My intellect has been mocked more than one time. Um, <laughs> I'm humbled and, uh, and and grateful for the experience. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer and Eleanor Kagan. The show is edited by Catherine Miller. Production assistant comes from Tyler Sorensen and Veronica Doolin. Our music is by Beauty Pill. You can find us on Twitter at Kate Nocera and at CYRZL. All right, Charlie. We'll talk to you next week. See you later.